Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend, colleague and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to be joined once again. I think he may have the crown. Uh, we are excited to be joined by Alex Avina, Associate Professor of Latin American History at the Arizona State University and author of the 2014 book, Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside. Alex, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks, guys. It's great to be back. Uh, so today we're, we're going to start um, kind of where we left off uh, last time with Alex, which is in the mid-1970s. And this is particularly relevant, as everything we do is relevant, because the president of Mexico from 1970 to 1976, Luis Echeverria, recently died. And, and Echeverria is a very crucial figure in Mexican history, and more listeners, particularly based in the United States, should know more about him. So Alex, who is Echeverria? Why is he important? And why is he important to the broader sweep of Mexican history or Mexican-U.S. relations, wherever you want to take it. Just to add, uh, he died. He was 100. He died at the age yeah. of 100. So if you're a believer that only the good die young, uh, <laughs> there's a case in point. Well, there's the old old Mexican saying that goes, yerba mala nunca muere. So basically, like, bad weeds don't die or old weeds don't die. So, yeah, so they, <laughs> they don't die. Um, Echeverria, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, unfortunately, he died not having ever faced justice for a lot of the, the horrific stuff that he committed, right? And we can, we can jump into that. We've already kind of covered some of it as it pertains to these guerrilla movements in Guerrero. But Echeverria was the long hand of the PRI. He worked his way up through, through the party structure. Um, in the late 60s, he was a minister of the interior when the infamous student massacre of Tlatelolco happened on October 1968, about a week before the Summer Olympics. Um, and then he gets um, picked uh, handpicked to be the next president of Mexico. He had been, you know, relatively unknown, just a, another uh, apparatchik of the PRI. But when he gets picked to run for president, uh, he decides that he's going to be like the new Lázaro Cárdenas, right? So he's going to be like a populist. And um, at that point in, in, in Mexican history, the, the so-called Mexican miracle, this economic growth that had been happening for two, three decades, has, has started to slow down, is showing some cracks. So uh, there's this effort then to Re- recreate uh, a, a, po- a sort of Mexican populism that had not been wit- seen since like the 1930s under Lázaro Cárdenas. Um, so internationally, Echeverria will be president from 70 to 76. Internationally, he's known and he's thought of as like a man of the left. He's progressive. Um, he, uh, he tries to really push through the new economic international order. Uh, he's famous for accepting um, South American exiles who are fleeing military dictatorships. He gives them safe haven in Mexico, even though, as we now know, they're being followed every day by, by the DFS, the Mexico's version of the FBI. Was Dorfman um, one of them? Ariel Dorfman, that's when he goes to Mexico? Or am I making yes. that up? Yes. That is, it's a huge moment. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole generation of like Argentine and, and Chilean and Uruguayan exiles. Eduardo Galeano from Uruguay will also go, uh, go to Mexico. So it, it is, it saved the lives of, of hundreds, perhaps thousands of South American exiles. Well, at the same time, we already discussed, he's waging a, a pretty brutal, dirty war internally both in the state of Guerrero against, against these rural guerrilla movements and also against um, a, an array of different urban guerrilla movements that start to emerge um, after 1973 and, and start to, the biggest of which is the, the Communist League of the September 23rd that has uh, probably close to 1,000 members nationally. So he, he will 
try to recreate this this populism, right? Public spending will will heavily, massively increase during his sexenia, during his six years in office. Um, you know, new public uh, institutions are founded. Social security net is expanded. Housing's provided. And I think most historians, those of us who cover the 70s now, look at that as kind of like a way to, to regain or recapture some sort of political legitimacy that had been lost as a consequence of some of the repressive actions of the late 60s and early 70s. Although, as we know, how to gauge you know, quantitatively legit, political legitimacy is a little difficult. But there is something different that's happening in the 70s. Uh, he also ramps up redistribution of land in, in certain areas as well, particularly in the north of Mexico. Um, and, and again, internationally, he's seen as a progressive figure, uh, but internally, he's waging a pretty brutal war against the left and he's against political dissidents who don't want to go along with with uh, his vision of what Mexico should look like, both domestically and internationally. Um, he's, he gets a lot of help from uh, the, the Mexican intelligentsia, right? The famous writer Carlos Fuentes coins this famous phrase of it's either Echeverria or fascism. So in other words, if you don't if we don't support Echeverria and close ranks around them, we're going to suffer some sort of South American style military dictatorship. And they do, they do get kind of spooked after what happens to Allende in, in, in 1973. Alex, um, I actually oh, have a question about that yeah. because I'm not an expert on Mexican military history, but it did seem for me as a novice that the Mexican military does occupy a different position in Mexico than it did in countries like Brazil um, or Argentina that, that sort of yeah. suffered military coups. Is that correct? And maybe could you yes. actually talk for a second about the sort of role the Mexican military plays in Mexican society? Because it does seem broadly unique uh, within South yeah. America. Central America. Yeah, no, America. That's, that's a great question. No, I, you're, you're exactly right, Danny. I think, you know, the big difference is that this army was actually created or emerges out of a popular revolution, right, at the, at the, in the early 20th century. So in contrast to these other South American militaries that, are, that, have long, that have long held connection to oligarchies and to ruling parties or ruling elites, the Mexican army is a creation of the Mexican Revolution of 1910, and the old Porfirian army is wiped out, right? So um, that is a huge difference. And it's a loyal servant. It's a it's a more or less loyal servant to the the kind of political structure that the PRI will create, um, particularly after 1940. Um, there there is a you know they, there's this myth that somehow um, the Mexican military is able to le- is is convinced to leave Mexican politics after 1940. It's you know more recent work has shown that that's anything you know it's far from from reality. Uh, but by and large, the Mexican military is beholden to this political system and structure that emerges in Mexico as a consequence of the Mexican Revolution in 1910. They have their own organic domestic forms of dealing with political dissent or even crime. So in the countryside, the Mexican military is the main policing force. Um, and the way that it deals with policing is it, 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 it tends to imagine its enemies as like bandits, cattle wrestlers, uh, criminals, narco traffickers, whatever. Whereas in South America, especially after the late 50s, early 60s, you know, the militaries in Brazil and Argentina, they're getting so much training from the French and they really buy into that national security doctrine or internal, sub- this idea of internal subversion. Um, and it's actually the French, the Americans. Yeah, right. French and living off Algeria and then bringing yeah. that idea to South America and Central America, more South America, yeah. and then it comes to the US. <laughs> right, and then it goes from the US back to Latin America. But by that point, it's it, the French have already done a lot to bring it in. The Portuguese also bring it in. I think that requires a bit more research. There's some like, Portuguese counterinsurgency schools in, in Southern Africa that are also sending trainers to, to South America at this time. Um, yeah, and then it goes to the U.S. and then it comes back. But the Mexican military is, has its own really unique trajectory. And a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is born out of a, a, a social revolution, 
which distinguishes it from from most of, of the rest of Latin America. And it will be loyal to this political system. Good. So that then brings us back to Echeverria. So does that mean the Echeverrian fascism thing was just wrong? Like if given that, given that, you know, Mexico was obviously looking at South America at the time, but what's, what's your take on that? Was that a, a not a fair in retrospect, you know, warning? I mean, I, I think it was overblown. I, uh, I mean, it's obviously for me to, to be sitting here in, in Tempe, Arizona now saying that, but I think that the, the real threat would not have come from the military. The real threat that starts to emerge, it comes from the right and, and really the big business, particularly in the north of Mexico. So there's a there's an infamous incident in September of 1973 where um, a you know the leading industrialist, practically a leading capitalist of northern Mexico, gets is killed in an attempted kidnapping at the hand of the the, the urban guerrillas called the Communist League of the September 23rd. So he's killed in that in that botched kidnapping attempt. And at his funeral, like the, Echeverria is there, and in Monterrey, this the northern city of Monterrey, that business elite lets him have it. And, and, and that creates a, a really serious political rift and fracture that I don't think the PRI ever really recovers from. I mean, it's slow, it's gradual, but I think 73 is a really important point, particularly after the, the murder of or the, the death of uh, Eugenio Garzazada, uh, where you start to see a division, a pretty clear rift that had been sutured uh, previously in, in the 40s and the 50s, this rupture between uh, big business and, and, and domestic capitalists, particularly in the North, um, in, in relation to the PRI. So, the, the, so the, the, the Echeverria is facing pressure, but the, he's facing pressure not from the military per se, but he's facing pressure, a much lesser pressure, I think, in the form of the guerrillas that, that we've talked about that, that my book covers. But he is facing also real serious political and economic pressure from domestic, uh, a certain important sector of domestic capitalist class. So what's the, what's the, um, what is the capitalist class upset with? That, that he's being one too lenient on so-called terrorists, uh, for one. Um, there's also an effort to... Uh, and this is like not just a Mexican issue; this is an issue all of Latin America. Is it, how do you raise? How does a government raise uh, revenue, right? And taxes. Well, these elites in Latin America tend not to like taxes, and they, historically they've been very effective in preventing the institution of any sort of progressive tax taxation system. Echeverria and and, and then his uh, successor will actually try to implement some sort of income tax reform. I mean, that pisses off the the, the wealthy in Mexico, and it fails. Um, and in failing to do so, that then forces Mexico to really ramp up its foreign borrowing. So I think Mexico starts 1970 with like, in terms of foreign debt from U- mostly U.S. private banks in the low billions, maybe three to four billion. And by the end of the decade, they're like 50, 60 billion dollars in debt. And a lot of that has to do with that, that they can't raise, uh, the government can't raise income domestically via taxation, precisely because of this really organized uh, pushback from, from the right and, and pushback from domestic capitalists. So this leads to questions about neoliberalism. But before I get there, can we talk about the nature of the American state? Because to me, as a you know someone who read a lot of Weber, this suggests also a weak state. Um, and this, I think, is, is is a recurring theme in Mexican history. Which with weak state might be too simple because there are elements of the state that are quite powerful. But what does this suggest about the nature of the Mexican state in the nineteen seventies? Yeah, I mean that's the, the the question that haunts my research, and I'm going to die being haunted by that damn question. What is this? What is the Mexican state? I mean, it suggests a couple of things. It, it suggests that despite all the horrific things that it does in the 60s and 70s, it does have still a pretty important reservoir of popular support and legitimacy, particularly in the cities. So, it, it, it in 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 the middle classes that are really created as a consequence of this ISI economic program that really takes off um, uh, during and after World War II. 
but this idea that that the PRI or this the, the Mexican state was this this corporatist structure that that you know emanated power centralized in Mexico City and and irradiated it out to the countryside and to provincial cities in this all powerful way is, is is a myth, right? And the the weaknesses of the Mexican state really ref- are reflected in the provinces in a place like Guerrero where they have to use you know they had the 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 armor the the coercive coercive aspect of the state to put down brutally. Uh, uh, these guerrilla movements, right? Disappearing almost a thousand people from 1969 to 1975. Um, so it's, it's the, the cop-out answer, it's both strong and weak at the same time. There's also, if, if you, la- you want to look at it through the lens of, of drugs, I mean, th- something that happens in the 70s, particularly when we get to the end of the 70s, is that you start to see the entrance of federal players or federal institutional players into the drug trade. Right. And, and they're the ones who start to kind of centralize and rationalize the drug trade. And that's also going to have an impact in terms of what the state's going to look like, uh, because there, there, there will be such an intimate relationship between the security apparatuses and the military with like big time narco traffickers and, and eventually some of the organizations that we see emerge by the 1980s. So it, that's a, that I didn't give you that's a total cop out answer, but that, that's what I, no, I mean, that's, that's the <laughs> truth. Um, one of the things that you said to me in a previous interview that stuck with me is that the drug trade provided the liquidity that allowed the global capitalism to continue to function after the 2008 crash. Could, could you talk a little bit in the 1970s, the, the function that the drug trade is, is serving for Mexico, but also capitalism, both in North America and globally? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is just the beginning, right? So obviously it's, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. In certain segments of, of rural Mexico, particularly in Sinaloa, which is generally seen as like the cradle of these narco-trafficking organizations and big drug kingpins, there's work that, there's been some interesting work and in research that suggests that there, um, drugs and, and, and large-scale drug production beginning in the 40s and 50s allowed for the creation of like a, a narco-populist pact that kind of mitigated uh, local class conflict between small peasants and middling peasant farmers and larger landed elites that were able to withstand the agrarian reform efforts of the Mexican state that occurred in the 1930s. So drugs become a way of kind of negotiating class conflict in the countryside in a place like Sinaloa. I think that works because it's Sinaloa and because there is so much of this drug production already happening early on. I'm currently working on research for Guerrero in in a similar time area, and I, I don't know if I've discovered something similar. Um, but when you start to see that, I mean, there's people making a ton of money in the 1970s, but it's really not until the 80s. And it's with the, especially with the introduction of cocaine, where you see just like the strata, like the, the level of, of, of profit that that's being made by people like, I guess, a friend of the pod, Rafael Caro Quintero, right? The guy who just got captured the other day in the mid 80s, he's, he's telling the Mexican government, look, like, let me let me work in peace and I'll pay off your foreign debt. I mean, so there's a quantitative difference of like of, of revenue and profit that's being made in the 70s versus the 80s it's just like it's so much more money in the 80s and and you know there's there's some argument to be made that perhaps you know during mexico's last decade the 80s were horrible economically we can talk about what happened in 82 but this drug money helped keep rural societies afloat to a certain extent um that and and undocumented migration to the u.s that really takes off in the 80s and by the, by the time we get, I think when I, when I made that comment, it was in reference to the crash in 2008, the recession, by that point is when you start to get, you know, profits up into the, the billions and the tens and 20, you know, the hundreds of billions of globally of drug money that, that some have suggested provided the necessary liquidity in, in during that moment of a credit crunch when the, the global economy was virtually stopped. But in terms of numbers, it's so different from like the 70s to like 2008, 2009, but it's starting to ramp up in the 70s. 
So it's interesting what you see is that basically it serves a local function of providing liquidity and then it probably goes national then and it keeps on growing, growing, growing until you get to 2008 yeah. and it's global. Before we get to the 82 default, can we talk a little bit about Mexico and neoliberalism? Um, and because neoliberalism, the, the starting date is generally pointed to when the United States um, goes off Bretton Woods and you get this transition from the New Deal order and it's sort of this broadly corporatist structure in the U.S. to something different. Um, how is Mexico dealing with that? What role or uh, what role does Echeverria play in that? Um, and is there, doesn't seem like there's an equivalent to the Chicago boys, but what's going on in the Mexican political economy as the United States transitions to a new political economy? Yeah, I think there's a, we can look at it in a variety of different angles. I think one, and this is like using the work of Sarah Babb, who's looking at She's looking at UNAM, the National University in Mexico. She's looking at like economics classes and, and, and syllabi and, 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 and programs to see what Mexican economists are being taught in the 70s and then the Go 80s. Pumas. And you, yeah, boo. Um, and uh, so what you start to see, especially in the mid 70s, you see some of the private universities, they're starting to crank out the, the neoliberal technocrats that will, that will play really increase, increasingly important roles in the 80s and 90s. So it's these private universities. UNAM, the National University, they'll still hang on to whether it's like Marxist or neo-Keynesian economic approaches a lot longer, but it's in these like elite private universities in Monterrey in Mexico city that will start to churn out some of these technocrats who many of which will also go and study for their masters or MBA or whatever in, in, in Ivy league universities in the United States. So trade, so tracking like the actual people who are being trained, that's one way to figure out when, when neoliberalism starts to begin in, in Mexico. Um, the other way to think about this is, Echeverria is kind of like the antithesis of it, right? Like, so on the one hand, Echeverria is, he's trying to be a populist. He's, he's massively increasing public spending. He's leading the, the global South charge against the international economic order. And he's trying to, he's calling for a, a global redistribution of wealth to change trade per, uh, relationship between the global South and the global North. But as, as Christy Thornton shows in her, in her excellent recent book, like Mexico and, and, and Echeverria are still really loyal players within the system. They're not trying to overthrow the system. They're just trying to tinker with uh, some of the levers and the metrics to, to, to have a more equitable distribution of resources. Um, and, and in the end, that really costs Mexico by the time we get to the, the default in 82, right? Because they don't really follow any sort of radical alternative, if any had existed, to, to this type of global economic system that's starting to emerge by the, by the mid to late 1970s. So one of the, the general, one of the traditional explanations of how Mexico gets into neoliberalism is by focusing on what happens in, with the 1982 def debt default, which at that point was the largest in history. People work their way backwards and say, well, that's a consequence of too much borrowing, foreign borrowing and public spending during the Echeverria years. Uh, his successor, Jose Lopez Portillos, had a, you know, he enters office having to devalue the peso and, and there's inflation. So he's already like pissed off. And the IMF actually comes to him in 1976. And, and Mexico is able to reject their offer of, of structural realignment. And, and one of the reasons why is because they just discovered massive new oil deposits in Mexico. And, and on, the, on the basis of a, being able to double oil production in the late 70s, from 77 to 81, and, and enjoying you know, pretty good global uh, prices for oil, uh, Mexico is kind of able to stave off what eventually will happen in 82, particularly after Paul Volcker raises uh, interest rates. And that, in combination with declining oil prices, creates this unprecedented economic crash in the global south. Mexico goes to the U.S. in 82 and says, we can't pay back our debts. U.S. banks are overexposed. So something needs to be done. And this, you know, the, the IMF comes in with U.S. private banks and the U.S. government comes in. They say, look, we'll give you money 
but you have to radically change your economic system, right? And this be, this is the beginning of, this is like an early form of Washington consensus, right? Mexico has to sell off hundreds of its state companies. It's got, it's got to eventually join GATT, which it will do in 86. Um, and it has, to new, it has to liberalize its economy. Of course, in practice, this all looks good on like spreadsheets, right? And an economic theory, but the way it plays out on the ground is, you know, by, the, by eight, 1990, you have like a new class of billionaires. Why are there so many billionaires like Carlos Slim? Because they were able to buy state-owned uh, companies at a really cheap price, and they turn and it, that it guaranteed them monopolies in strategic sectors uh, of the economy, um, and that made them a ton of money. So Carlos Slim buys Mexico's telecommunications monopoly because he had hookups with with the, the people in power. He buys it really cheap, and overnight he becomes a billionaire because he has a monopoly on all of Mexico's telephones for during the 1980s and early 1990s. And this happens over and over again. So it's it, in contrast to the more dramatic story of the Chicago boys and tanks in Chile in September of 1973. Uh, for Mexico, it's a it's a longer story. It involves oil, and then it really um, it, the 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 the, uh, the hinge pointer that the important moment is is 82 with the with the debt default. So what happens in 82 is that there's a broad privatization of previous public goods, and does that lead to an increase in inequality to um uh within mexico and um as 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 we talk about that question i was also wondering if we could talk a little bit about amlo and his political formation um because i think you know he's someone who's really crucial and he's on the left but then when he's mayor of mexico city he allies with carlos slim to sort of redevelop the downtown corridor and i think like the 80s is is crucial for understanding and correct me if i'm wrong i'm only a layperson here but it's crucial to understanding how Mexico operates today and how, you know, dissenters operate today, whether you're talking about the PAN or you're talking about the PRD initially or Moreno or uh, what have you. So kind of a broad question, kind of just go. <laughs> <laughs> so the, yeah, so you, you start to get a wave of privatizations, but it'll take a while, right? It's not going to be overnight. So this will be the rest of the 1980s. You'll have a gradual privatization of hundreds of state-owned companies, um, and then by the time you get to the, the late 80s, um, you start to begin the negotiation for the North American Free Trade Agreement, right? So that's also an important story. That's kind of like the culmination of a, of, of a process that begins with the debt default um, in 1982. But yeah, inequality in Mexico takes off in, in the 1980s. I mean, inequality had already been a really important story as part of the ISI years of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Like inequality in, uh, increased, actually, during the 1950s and 60s. But what happens... Um, in the 1980s is, is catastrophic. So you, you, a middle class that had been created, um, you know, will lose all of its savings or most of its savings and ability to earn wages overnight, almost throughout the 1980s. Uh, the 1980s are, are the so-called lost decades because uh, and it, it, people just it, were pauperized. Um, that at the same at the same time that you see the creation of a small billionaire class in Mexico, you see a PRI that is unable to respond to this this widening gap of socioeconomic inequality. Another important factor that, that I didn't mention that, it's, that really takes off in the 70s is demographic, gro- demographic growth. So Mexico's population is skyrocketing during the 70s because I think it was when Echeverria's presidency begins, they're telling Mexicans to have more kids. Like, we need more kids. We need more uh, citizens and laborers to get us into the first world. And by the end of his uh, sexenio, his, his time in office, uh, they have a very aggressive birth control campaign because the population uh, increased. 
That then leads to undocumented migration to the U.S. That's one of the big, one of the the, the factors that contributes to the the emergence of the so-called illegal alien that that takes over in American political discourse and media discourse, beginning really in the mid 1970s. Um, and you start to see sustained undocumented migration in the mid 70s to today, um, and in the 80s it just takes off. Um, in the 70s, a lot of people from the countryside. In the 80s, that will continue. But then the 80s, you also start to see people from the urban middle classes. Um, from cities who are coming to the U.S. because its econo- economic situation is just so dreary um, in Mexico. My parents uh, decided to do the genius thing of going back to Mexico in the middle of the last decade. Uh, and so we lived there when I was young for two years and uh, our money ran out and uh, we were back in the U.S. Um, so I still give my dad shit about that. Uh, I-, I congratulate him on his timing. So in, in terms of switching... And so obviously the, the, the 80s is this crazy decade, right? Because you have the, the, the undocumented migration. There's also drug stuff that we can talk about. And it, it's done so much to structure U.S. politics today and political discourse. Um, in terms of AMLO, so AMLO, is, AMLO was, a, was a loyal PRI guy, right? But he was – that really started to get his place in the, in the, in the party, in the state party um, in the east coast of Mexico um, in, in the late 70s. But he was more associated with kind of like that – that wing of the PRI that was still very nationalist, economic nationalism, political nationalism. And, and his, so his, um, his, uh, his mentors were really more toward, they're going to be part of the wing of the, of the PRI that are a- against this, neo, this push for neoliberalization as a way to deal with the debt default. Um, I'm an interesting guy, man. He's, I, I, I really, I still can't believe that to this day, I still see US and UK media refer to him as a fiery leftist. He gives a speech every morning, and if you've heard his his rambling discourses, it is neither fiery and it's neither well. It, sometimes it's leftist, sometimes it's not. I mean, but he's really like the way I understand him is he's he's that he's like the he he's his tradition is this social liberalism that comes from the Mexican Revolution, from the PRI that gets created throughout the 20th century. So even though I wanted to be more leftist, um, I recognize that he's not necessarily a leftist right he's progressive and he's a social he's socially he's a liberal he's a liberal with a social consciousness and that's a whole tradition in mexican history that goes back even to the 19th century and that's why his got the guys that he makes references to are like benito juarez right like he's 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 always going back to the liberals of the late 19th century and i think that's actually really important he talks about francisco madero i think that's another important thing to think about political liberalism as opposed to social liberalism or how these two things meet um, without having to cast him as like another leftist Latin American Calillo and using these Orientalist tropes that, that like some media types really like to use with him. Um, there's also a thing within Mexican media as well to call to refer to him as another Echeverria. And, and the funny thing to me is, okay, maybe in style they might share some things, but Echeverria spent. Echeverria had massive public spending projects. And if anything, AMLO's known for his austerity, right? And that's the whole thing. He has this idea of Republican austerity. Um, and actually, his response to the to the COVID pandemic has been, in terms of spending and helping people out, has been one of the lowest, if not the lowest, in Latin America, right? So, anyway, there are sorts of contradictions, I think, when it comes to understanding someone like AMLO. I th- Danny, I think it's really good that you brought up the example of him as being mayor of Mexico City, because that's where I think he learned how to create some of these unlikely alliances with people like Carlos Slim. So, while he was mayor of Mexico City, he worked with Carlos Slim to redevelop certain parts of Mexico City to create roads. Well, now he's working with Carlos Slim, but they're creating this like tourist train that's going to cut across pristine landscape in the Yucatan Peninsula, right? So it's like, yeah, anyway, so it, it's, 
he's a complicated guy. I'll just leave it at that. Could you maybe sketch out a little bit that tradition of social liberalism? Because people in the United States might not quite understand how that tradition is different in Mexico. What do you mean by liberalism there? Uh, going back to Benito and this sort of 19th century capital L liberalism. Dude, Could you just sketch that We're going to do bit? like 10 more episodes, right? Good. All right. <laughs> Fine uh, with us, man. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> no, you're going to get me like the Afghanistan, the poor Timothy Nunn, man. Um, okay, so... I'm trying to think of like the, the fastest way to do this. It, 19, let's say 19th century political liberalism, particularly after the 1850s, in, in, encapsulated in a figure like Benito Juarez. It's close to like a, what a you what a, a a contemporary American would identify as li- political liberalism, right? It's equality before individual equality before the law. Um, there's this commitment to free markets. There's a commitment to enterprise. There's a commitment to a particular form of capitalism. And considering Mexicans' history. Uh, Mexico's history, excuse me, uh, they go after what they identify as corporatist leftovers from the colonial era. So one of the things that Benito Juarez does is, and his party, the, the Mexican liberals, what, what something that they'll do, and this will spark civil wars, this will spark the French intervention of the 1860s, is that they go after the Catholic Church in Mexico and they take away its political, economic, and social power. Um, and they also will go after this other huge corporate institution that's a holdover of Spanish colonialism in Mexico, which is communally owned lands, right? So the idea was we want to create a nation of small yeoman farmers in a country that's mostly indigenous or mixed race campesinos. To do that, we have to break up their corporate land holdings, right? Some of these communities still had colonial land titles, deeds to their lands, Um, but we have to break those up and then they can buy them back and they're going to become these small yeoman farmers. So again, in theory, it's nice. In practice, what, what this particular form of liberalism created in Mexico, particularly once you have Porfirio Diaz in power, is you have the privatization of Mexican land, right? Mexican peasants, something like 90% of Mexican peasants land, lose their land. And that is directly, it directly correlates to the, the, the big you know, social explosion that is the 1910 Mexican Revolution. So one of the things that, that these liberals will then learn as a consequence of the Mexican Revolution is that political li- liberalism on its own is not enough, right? There needs to be a social bent or a social angle to it as well. There needs to be a certain form of economic nationalism to combine with the political. And this is why the 1917 Mexican constitution has, is, is both politically pretty progressive um, on, on paper, but it's also social and economically progressive, right? There's a very strong economic nationalist uh, component to the Mexico's constitution. Things like, you know, ensuring agrarian reform for peasants, uh, making sure that, that subsoil minerals uh, belong to the nation, et cetera. There's an economic nationalism built into it. So that's what I mean by, by this, this marriage of like political and social liberalism. How is that instantiated in modernity with someone like AMLO? AMLO coming of political age in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. How does that sort of broad liberal perspective, Jeffersonian yeomanry, translate into the context of post-1968 Mexico? I think what, what AMLO does um, is, again, that marriage of political liberalism with, let's say, economic nationalism. Um, he's able to redeploy that in in the against the one thing that he identifies as like the main enemy of Mexico today, which is neoliberalism. He never really defines what neoliberalism is. Like he's he talks about it that it pauperizes the Mexican population, that it's created really wealthy people, that wealth is privatized. But that's like the one thing he really rails against neoliberalism. Um, so the way that his that that's how his marriage of economic nationalism or social liberalism or political liberalism come together right in the fa- in the his face off against something. 
that is nebulously identified as neoliberalism, even though some of his, I think, you know, arrangements and alliances that he has with people like Carlos Slim, we could obviously say, hey, let's, that looks a little neoliberal-ish. Um, how does that fit within your, your constant railing against it? And that's really what made him Mexico's most popular political leader of the 2000s, right? He's like the one guy who has had an actual social base of popular support. Like people marched from all over Mexico in 2006 after he said he was robbed of the, the presidential election. Hundreds, thousands of people marched to Mexico City and they shut down Mexico City's main street for like months on end. Like regardless of what you think of this dude, he actually has genuine popular support. And I think it's because he taps in to this long tradition of a, a particular form of liberalism that is combines political, economic and social elements together. And then there's also a long tradition of like popular liberalism from below, really, um, you know, Matt, exemplified by the very beginning phase of the, the Zapatista movement, right, in the 1910s, led by, by Emiliano Zapata. Could we talk a bit about the PRI um, and how that transformed over the 70s and the 80s? Because my understanding is that AMLO himself leaves the PRI in 1989. And then, of course, there's the Colosio drama, and then there's the 2000 um, victory of the pawn for the first time since the revolution of the PRI, yeah. uh, that where the PRI is is not governing Mexico. So it seems like the 70s and the 80s and the 90s are also critical moments for that. So how does that party um, begin to lose its hegemony in Mexican society? I mean, that's it, it really takes off, well, it gets demolished, starts to demolish in the 1980s, right? So as a consequence of, of the debt default and, and the widespread inequality and, and just immiseration that, that the vast majority of Mexicans will experience during the so-called lost decades, um, you also get a couple other things that are really important. You mentioned some of them, Danny, but the, the other, the one that you didn't mention that I think is really important is, is this massive, horrific 8.0 earthquake that hits Mexico City in September of 1985. Um, and actually, Wild the man. earthquake was located off the coast of the state of Michoacan. So at that moment, I was living in Michoacan with my parents, and I still remember watching our house like dance, you know, your hands, like thinking, your house is not supposed to move that way. Um, and I remember my parents like not letting me see, Danny, you've been to Mexico City. You see like the Roja Nota, these really bloody, cheap uh, yeah, newspapers, yeah, right? That yeah. sell by, by showing these tabloids, graphic pictures. Effectively, yeah. yeah, just yeah. really bloody, uh, gory uh, tabloids. Uh, I remember my parents telling me, no, we're not, don't look at those. Those are awful. This earthquake killed maybe 10,000, more than 10,000 people in Mexico City, demolished large parts of the city. And the PRI completely mishandled the recovery, mishandled international uh, relief efforts, um, it, that really was the, the first huge crack of, of the PRI's legitimacy before uh, Mexican civil society, that this, was, this, this, made, this gave it a black eye that, that it did not recover from. Um, and, and what people in Mexico City did was essentially organize on their own to help, one each, to help each other out, to organize uh, brigades that went, and re went into demolished buildings to rescue people who were still alive. They, you know, the, the people, uh, this family that, that was, that, um, that I became friends with when I lived down there, uh, they, they told me stories about how they stopped, they stopped going to work and they would just make sandwiches all day and then go out into the areas of the city where that suffered the most from the earthquake and they would just be giving, giving out food and sandwiches to the people who were in need. Like the, uh, like the people stepped up and or self-organized and uh, you know, there's a really annoying literature, I think, that talks about this is the, the new social movement. I mean, I would say these social movements have existed in Mexico for a long time, but there is something new that happens as a consequence of this, this earthquake. Um, in 85, the president of Mexico, Miguel de la Madrid, from 82 to 88, is really stumbling from one crisis to another. They're trying to find different ways of dealing with the IMF, with 
this austerity program that's just immiserating Mexicans. They really, they tried to, um, on the one hand, they tried to really invoke like a revolutionary nationalist discourse or really trying to go back to 1910. That doesn't work. Um, so the guy that they picked to be president uh, uh, in 1988, Carlos Salinas de Gortari, is one of these like Harvard trained technocrats. And he starts to do this neoliberal message that he calls social liberalism to distinguish different from what I just described for AMLO. And he, there's a very contested election in 1988, Lázaro Cárdenas' son, Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, who uh, was the leader of kind of like the left wing of the PRI, the entire left wing broke off. They create their own political organization so they could run a candidate for the 1988 presidential elections. Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas is, 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 has been involved in Mexican politics for a long time. He obviously has a famous father. Um, and, it, and he's running against this Harvard uh, technocrat with a really shady, dubious past, apparently he may have been responsible for the, the murder of uh, his nanny when he was little. With yes, his that's, brother. That's like, with his brother. Some of you have may, may have seen that in the, in the, was that Narcos, I think, when they show that? Um, it was, but I knew it before. Yeah. It's a, it's okay. a, common, it's a common thing. That <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, this, becomes an, this election becomes infamous because at one point of the election night when they're tabulating the results, uh, Amro's current, what is, this guy by the name of Manuel Bartlett, who at that point when I think was Minister of the Interior, right now he occupies a different cabinet position for AMLO. I think he runs uh, the National Electricity Company. He gives, he goes on TV and gives a famous comment where he said, el sistema se cayó, right? The system has crashed. The computers are dead. Well, right when we were in the middle of counting and it looked like Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas had been leading the vote at that point. And then when the computers turn back on, Salinas de Gortari wins. Um, and there's a lot and this of this is why things. Mexico has very complex voting procedures now where yeah. it involves counting and double counting and local precincts. It's, it's quite interesting because now you can't do it electronically because of this, yeah. right? Because of the 88 event. Yeah. Yeah. That's one reason. Yeah. Yeah. And in general, I think all, all listeners pay attention to how elections are run in Latin America in contrast to the U S and it's going to, it's, it's going to anger you, I think. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so so all, so that's another hit at the PRI legitimacy, right? Especially since Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, had he, Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas could have done a, a much more radical uh, protest movement to question the legitimacy of this vote if he had wanted to. Like he had people from the state of Guerrero, people who probably had supported Lucio Cabañas in the 70s, writing him letters saying, we will make sure we will put you in the national palace if we have to with machine guns in our hand, right? Like there was a lot of popular support for 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 Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas's case that he had been he had suffered electoral theft at the highest level, um, he doesn't do that. Instead, they they transition and they form a party that is now known as the PRD. Um, and and from eighty eight to ninety four, Salinas de Gortari's tenure, it is just you know it's the the final culmination of neoliberalization of the Mexican economy. You have the negotiation of NAFTA, um, and it's all sorts of other crazy things happen in his sexenio. Um, but it really, what, what marks it is, the, is NAFTA, negotiating NAFTA in 1992. And then when, you, when it goes into effect on January 1st, 1994, uh, Mexicans wake up to find that this indigenous guerrilla army has taken over like a dozen towns in the state of Chiapas. And the famous Ejército Zapatista de Liberación Nacional, the EZLN, you know, led by this charismatic spokesperson, Su Comandante Marcos, uh, they're on TV giving interviews about how they're going to march straight to Mexico City to overthrow the corrupt PRI. Um, and, and, and that, you know, there's a really good, well, there's a good documentary on Netflix just on 1994 alone in Mexico. It's the, the number of political assassinations, you know, leading presidential candidates for that year's election are assassinated. 
the brother, the brother-in-law of Salinas de Gortari is assassinated in really shady circumstances. Um, it, 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 and then you have a, a massive uh, crash of the Mexican economy once again, uh, the so-called tequila, was it tequila crisis. Um, and that's really, that marks, uh, for all intents and purposes, 1994, I think, marks like the end of the PRI. And um, even though they win the election that year and Ernesto Cedillo, another Ivy League trained technocrat, will take over, um, there's this feeling that at least at the national presidential level, the PRI's days are numbered. And effectively, they lose the 2000 election not to a left candidate, not to a center left candidate, but to this right wing charlatan uh, Coca-Cola executive uh, by the name of Vicente Fox. Okay, the, the official soft drink of, of American prestige. <laughs> so I'll ask you to be a little more respectful. <laughs> yes, Alex. Okay. Hey, cut that. Cola. Cut that out. <laughs> so, Alex, I think this is a, a good place to stop and, and uh, you know, discussion, our discussion of kind of what's happening in uh, wider Mexico. And certainly, you know, you, I'm sure you will be back to, to continue that conversation. But I think 94 is a good place to, to, to break off. What I want, what I'd like to do, uh, to close out here is to kind of take us back to your book, uh, and to what happens in Guerrero, uh, after, you know, through the 1980s, uh, and the early 90s after the, uh, the fall of the, the PDLP. And you talk about, uh, you talk about this in the books and the, the impulses that, you know, fed the guerrilla movement kind of were channeled in other directions. They were channeled to some degree into politics. And we've already talked, you've already talked about the, the, the kind of the rise of the PRD and, and, um, you know, that channel. But also there, there was, you know, a rise, it seems like in, uh, kind of activist movements and sort of, uh, you know, community groups and which then led to this sort of cyclical, uh, event basically where you had these groups kind of agitating for for improvements and then another act of state terrorism basically government uh repression and the aguas blancas massacre uh in 1995 which leads to the creation of the popular revolutionary army i wonder if you could kind of walk us through this sort of uh i guess aftermath of the, the what you talk about in the book yeah no thanks Derek. that's that's great um I mean, one way we can kind of track this is through through an individual who I got who I got to interview for for the dissertation in the book, and, and it's a longtime peasant activist leader by the name of Hilario Messino. And Messino was a young man, maybe a teenager, in 1974 when when federal army troops came to his house and they took his 19 year old brother Alberto and disappeared him. So one of his earliest memories is uh, the military just attacking his house, taking his brother away, and 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 he never got to see him again. Hilario worked in coffee, right, the, uh, in coffee production, and Hilario throughout the late 70s and early 80s um, was involved in organizing these independent peasant uh, unions, organized around the particular crop that they produced. So whether it was coffee, whether it was corn, whether it was um, sesame, um, and so they had, they had their own separate like producers unions that in the 80s, they kind of brought together into a broader uh, mass-based movement that was really important in supporting uh, Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas' electoral campaign in 1988, like an important segment of that base in Guerrero. And Guerrero was one of his most important bases, came from these peasant unions, many of whom could trace their roots back to some of them actually participated in the guerrilla movement. Others did not, but they had family members who had been in the movement who had suffered state terror. Um, Hilario then goes on to co-found a group called Organización Campesina de la Sierra. It's OC. OCSS. Um, and this movement, um, you know, got involved in local municipal politics in the early 1990s. Um, the PRD, something like 
between two to 500 of its members were killed in Mexico after the 1988 election, right? So they, because they tried to run for office at the local level and in a place like Guerrero, dozens of them were killed by, by local caciques, political powers, whatever. Um, Hilario then co-founds this group, the OCSS, and they start to, org again, bring together these, these, these peasant unions, producers unions, and they also start to organize, eventually they'll organize against big uh, uh, state, uh, state projects like uh, hydroelectric dams. Um, but in the mid nineties, they start to organize for really simple things. Like we want cheaper, we want subsidized fertilizer for our, for our, for our farms. We want, uh, subsidized seeds. We want water. We want irrigation. And they were really into direct action, like, like, like closing down roads. Um, and on their way to one of these mass protests that they had helped organize in the capital city of Chilpancingo, Hilario, I don't remember if Hilario was part of this convoy, but a convoy of OCSS members were ambushed by state police uh, forces upon the orders of then Governor Ruben Figueroa Alcocer, who was the son of the governor of Guerrero in the 1970s, who's just known as this, this, this horrific monster um, who was actually kidnapped by the PDLP and then becomes governor and was horrific in power. His son orders a hit on this peasant union that was on its way to a peaceful protest in the state capital, again, demanding things like fertilizer credit, uh, seeds, etc., um, the only reason why people found out about this massacre is because the, the cops actually videotaped themselves massacring these people. Um, and someone leaked it to Ricardo Rocha, who was a famous national journalist. Um, and that was how Mexico learned in 1995 of the Aguas Blancas massacre. I think it was almost two dozen campesino activists were, were ambushed and killed uh, by state police forces upon the orders of the state governor. Um, and then a year later, at a political commemoration of this event, of this horrific massacre, at an event that included national political luminaries like Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, this shadowy guerrilla group called the EPR, uh, uh, dozens of them all with AK-47s and their faces covered, kind of take over the event and they, they read their manifesto and they're saying, we are declaring revolutionary war against the Mexican government. And we're doing it on the commemoration of this one-year massacre of the Aguas Blancas massacre. And this one more thing, one more way, at least as someone who studies the history of Guerrero, that to me, it really proves that like Guerrero is really the, the, the fuck around and find out state. Like it's, you have this recurrence, this cyclical nature of repression, poverty, political authoritarianism at the municipal and, and state level. And, but then you also have the pushback. And, and for whatever reason, in the last hundred years, that pushback has tended to take the form of, of armed struggle in one way, shape or form. And to this day, the EPR and other groups continue to exist in Guerrero. They're still up in the mountains. Um, they're still organizing, and the EPR it takes more of a prolonged popular warfare take. Um, and we could talk about them forever, but th so they have this idea of more like a, a drawn-out revolutionary strategy that that is uh, quite explicitly Maoist in orientation, um, and they're still around. Well, on that note, Alex Avina, thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, we'll have you back once again, now and forever and always, and we'll take it the, pick up the story in 1990. So thanks a lot, man. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care.